Okay. So again, checking. Uh, can you understand me all? Is it loud enough? There are noddings off the head, okay. it seems to be okay. <laughs> so tonight, I'm going to speak about the protective power of the Dhamma. And in several places in the scriptures, the following sentence uh, can be found. It says, the power of the Dhamma protects the follower of the Dhamma. The meaning of this sentence is quite clear and straightforward. There's not much room for doubts about what is being said. Yet still, uh, some questions arise. For example, what is actually meant by the power of the Dhamma that can act as a protection? Or how is the follower of the Dhamma protected? From what or from whom is he or she protected? Or when or under what circumstances does the Dhamma have the power to give protection? So there are certain areas that are said or in which the Dhamma can act as a power, uh, give protection. So I will mention a few of them tonight. One of the suttas directly addresses this topic. And in this sutta, the Buddha told the following story. There was once a pair of jugglers who performed their acrobatic feats on a bamboo pole. One day the master said to his apprentice, Now get on my shoulders and climb up the bamboo pole. When the apprentice had done so, the master said, Now protect me well, and I will protect you. By protecting and guarding each other in this way, we will display our skills, collect our fee, and get down safely from the bamboo pole. But the apprentice then said, This is not the way to do it, master. You protect yourself, and I will protect myself. Thus, each self-guarded and self-protected, we will display our, dis our skills, collect our fee, and get down safely from the bamboo pole. And then the Buddha commented that this was the right way, the way the apprentice had said. And the Buddha then continued to say that to, to protect oneself means to practice the four foundations of mindfulness. And the Buddha said to protect others also refers to the practice of the four foundations of mindfulness. And after having said, then the Buddha uh, further said, protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. And this the Buddha explained as when one protects oneself, how does one protect others? And the Buddha said it's through the cultivation and development of the four foundations of mindfulness that this protection comes about. And how is it that by protecting others, one protects oneself? And here the Buddha said, it is through patience, through harmlessness, through loving-kindness and sympathy that the protection comes about. So first of all, let's go to the protection of oneself that comes about through the practice 
of the four foundations of mindfulness. In other words, um, this protection is gained from practicing vipassana meditation. And in vipassana meditation, one mental factor plays an important role, mindfulness, sati. And mindfulness as a mental factor um, is contained in different groups of dhammas when dhammas are um, systematized or categorized. So we know dhamma, uh, mindfulness, sati, is one of the five mental faculties. Mindfulness is also one of the five mental powers. Mindfulness as a factor of enlightenment or right mindfulness as a factor of the Noble Eightfold Path. And it is said that the way mindfulness is manifested, it's manifested as protection or guardianship. It protects the mind from unwholesome mental states or it guards the mind from the defilements. So let's take the example of seeing an object and let's say it's a nice and lovely object. So when the mind is not guarded by mindfulness, then this nice visible object will immediately be grasped by the mind. Within no time, the mind is attached to that object and it doesn't want to let go of that object anymore. If the object, in one way or another, disappears or is removed by another person, then one tries to get that object again. And so one gets involved in all kinds of activity uh, to bring about the necessary conditions for it to be there again. And so in this way, the mind gets caught up in unwholesome mental states, craving, wanting, or dislike, frustration, pushing away, and so on. And so the mind falls prey uh, to the defilements. On the other hand, when the mind is protected by mindfulness, then the defilements have no chance to creep into the mind. Or if they still have the chance to creep into the mind, then at least they are not given free reign to do whatever they want. In our example of seeing a nice and pleasurable object, then if mindfulness is very good, if the mind is really alert and awake, then seeing that nice, lovely, lovely object, uh, this careful observation, careful awareness, prevents the mind from getting caught up in uh, defilements. So with strong mindfulness of the object that leads to the recognition, well, it's a nice, lovely, pleasant object, but then the mind wouldn't get further. And so it, the mind uh, wouldn't allow negative or unwholesome mental states to arise. However, sometimes the power of mindfulness is not so strong and then it cannot entirely protect the mind from defilements uh, to arise. But nevertheless, there is some degree of mindfulness and so mindfulness can quickly uh, become aware 
that a defilement has arisen. And so then being able to observe and be aware of that um, defilement, the defilement loses its power and it disintegrates or fades away. In this way, mindfulness serves as a protection or guard against unwholesome mental states. If it's really strong and powerful, then mindfulness can prevent the arising of defilements in the first place. If it is not that strong, not that precise, then at least mindfulness can catch the arisen defilement early enough so that this defilement will not spread like a bushfire. Some years ago, I was teaching a meditation retreat in the beautiful center in Switzerland. The center is up in the mountains and it has this gorgeous view on uh, snow-capped uh, big mountains. So anyway, one meditator came for interview and she said that the other day she had uh, to observe anger because that was what was arising. And unlike before when she would uh, usually get overwhelmed by the anger and be swept away by it and it would take a long, long time to uh, deal with it. She said that the previous day she really tried to be mindful of the anger, observe it, note it. And then she said to her big surprise, it didn't take very long and she started to see the anger become weaker, dissipate dissolve and then finally it had completely gone and for her that was a really uh, new and surprising experience that something strong as anger could within a short time just dissolve into nothing not be there anymore and then she said you know it was like the mind or mindfulness was eating up the anger <laughs> It was like anger was presented on a plate, a good portion of anger, but then mindfulness was just eating it up, eating it away, and there was this plate left, clean, <laughs> with no traces of uh, anger left anymore. So, Mindfulness as a protection um, and as the Buddha said, like the four foundations of mindfulness. So, of course, it relates to all the four uh, foundations, not only seeing a visible object. So it can be applied to all the four different uh, foundations of mindfulness. And Actually, mindfulness, uh, meditation, or mental development, this is the highest and most reliable form of protection. Now let's go to protecting others. One protects oneself. So how can we protect others? The Buddha mentioned, first of all, sort of practice of mindfulness, practicing the four foundations of mindfulness. And he also mentioned through the practice of patience, of harmlessness, loving kindness, and sympathy. It's quite obvious that with these qualities of patience, harmlessness, loving-kindness, and sympathy, we protect others from harm and injury. 
like with the practice of patience and forbearance, we avoid conflicts and quarrels. And abiding in harmlessness, we do not inflict injuries or harm to other beings. And when our actions of body and speech are suffused with loving-kindness, we show our sincere commitment to create harmony and understanding between people, between beings. And when we deal with other people, we show our sympathy by trying to understand their point of view. And so, in this way, we will protect others by not causing them any harm. Our considerate actions are like an umbrella that gives protection to everybody around us. And by giving this protection to others, at the same time, we protect ourselves by uh, not committing any immoral actions. And so, by doing so, we are not only free from the immediate results of our wrongdoing, but also free from the later results of these unwholesome actions, like the karma that we created that will uh, manifest in results. To effectively protect oneself and others, we need some basic understanding of what is considered to be good or helpful, beneficial, unwholesome. And later on, when talking about moral conduct, I will go into this. So apart from mindfulness, there are other aspects mentioned in the Buddhist teachings that can give us protection. Before going into that, let's have a short look at the word protection. As we use the word protection, it implies protection from something or protection against uh, something. And in the most general sense, it means the protection from harm, the protection from danger or injury or fear. Or put in other words, the protection from something disliked or frightening or something we don't want. So a very basic aspect of protection is connected to the way we behave uh, in the world. And this concerns our actions of body and speech. With our physical and verbal actions, we affect ourselves and the world around us. And we affect the effect is, can be quite deep and profound. So we can either contribute to harmony and understanding, or we can inflict injury, uh, jealousy, harm, and conflicts. We only need to read the newspaper or watch the news on TV to see the mostly devastating effect people's actions have on themselves and on others. It would be much more difficult to fill newspapers or news on TV with article, articles that show people's good-heartedness or benevolent concern for each other. And it would be interesting to... Uh, see whether people were actually interested in that kind of news. <laughs> if anybody would even uh, turn on the TV to see that kind of news. <laughs> but that's the state of 
our world. So to be a human being involves some restraint to one's actions so that we do not hurt ourselves and others. And because it's not so clear to everybody on this planet what uh, constitutes good actions, beneficial actions of body and speech, so certain guidelines uh, have been set up in most uh, major religions or cultures. And also the Buddha, uh, he proposed the five precepts or five guidelines as the minimum standard to live a decent and compassionate life. And these are the five precepts that we chanted at the beginning of this talk. So by keeping the precepts, first of all, we protect ourselves. At the most elementary level, the observance of the five precepts protects us from coming into trouble with the law. Killing, stealing, adultery, bearing false testimony, and irresponsible behavior caused by drunkenness or drugs, these are offenses punishable by the law. And on top of that, following these precepts helps also to establish a good reputation among our fellow human beings, among our family, our friends, people at work, uh, and colleagues. On a more inward level, keeping the precepts leads to a clear conscience. Even if nobody else knows our misdeed, but we won't have a clear conscience. So then we will be haunted by guilt, by uneasiness, by remorse. And so the absence of remorse or guilt leads to another benefit, which in Buddhism is not to be underestimated. With a clear conscience, we will be able to die peacefully, without fear, without confusion, without having remorse. So, as we know, according to the Buddha's teaching, the mode of rebirth we take in our existence is determined by our karma, which means by our intentional actions we have performed in this existence. And the general principle is that wholesome actions give result to wholesome effects. Unwholesome intentional actions give rise to unwholesome uh, effects. And concerning rebirth, so wholesome actions give rise to favorable rebirth. Unwholesome actions um, rather lead to an unfavorable uh, rebirth. And so keeping the precepts, the five precepts, for example, this brings about the accumulation of wholesome karma. And this wholesome karma um, tends to give rebirth in the happy planes of existence, which means the uh, human world and the heavenly worlds. And again, this wholesome karma, when it comes to maturity in the course of one's life, produces wholesome, favorable results, which are in accordance to the nature of the precepts. So, for example, uh, said very generally, abstaining from taking the life of other beings leads to longevity. Or abstaining from stealing leads to wealth and prosperity 
abstaining from sexual misconduct leads to popularity. Abstaining from false speech leads to a good reputation. And it is said that abstaining from taking intoxicants generally leads to mindfulness and wisdom. So the protection from the uh, coarsest level of defilements can be done by keeping the precepts. The ultimate goal of the Buddha's teaching is the complete overcoming of the defilements. In other words, the liberation, the attainment of Nibbana. And this is uh, attained by practicing the path that leads to complete liberation. And the path uh, with that is meant the Noble Eightfold Path. And this Noble Eightfold Path is divided into three groups, moral conduct, concentration, and wisdom. And so the most fundamental uh, of these three stages is moral discipline, sila. And this begins with observing the precepts. And so in this way, the undertaking of the precepts can be understood as, the praise, as a basic protection on the way to final liberation. And in the case of uh, keeping the precepts, it is very obvious that by protecting ourselves, we protect others as well at the same time. So by not harming them in any way, we offer other beings fearlessness. Others don't need to be afraid of being killed or tortured. We offer them trust. Others don't need to worry about their belongings or property being taken away or stolen. We offer harmony. Others don't need to mistrust the partners for having an affair. We also offer honesty and truthfulness. So others don't need, uh, need to feel insecure whether or not the truth is being said. And we offer clarity. Others don't need to fear unpredictable or silly actions on our part. The observance of these five basic precepts is motivated by two mental states, commonly known as the guardians of the world. And these two states, the guardians of the world, are Hiri and Otapa in Pali. Hiri is a sense of shame over moral transgression. And Otapa is the moral fear of the results of wrongdoing. And the Buddha called these two states the bright guardians of the world. As long as these two qualities can be found in people's hearts, the moral standards of the world remain intact. However, if the influence of Hiri and Otapa wanes, then the human world falls into unabashed promiscuity and violence. History books and Newspapers are full of such incidents. Stories of incest and rape, suicide bombers, or 9-11, or the gas chambers during Nazi Germany, and so on. And if that happens, then the Buddha said, 
the human world is not different anymore from the animal world. So when we cultivate these two qualities of moral shame and fear of wrongdoing, we actually can speed up our progress towards liberation. And on top of that, we also contribute our share towards the protection of the world. As we know, all forms of life are very closely interrelated. And so based on this recogni recognition, we should make Hiri and Otapa the guardians of our own mind. And when we do so, uh, we become the guardians of the world. So by protecting ourselves, we protect others. By protecting others, we protect ourselves. To cultivate these two qualities of Hiri and Otapa, we need some self-restraint. Without a healthy degree of sense restraint, uh, Hiri and Otapa actually cannot exist. If we give in to every uh, impulse of greed, desire, wanting, or dislike, aversion, then we surely will engage in actions that are not in accordance with the five precepts. And so to keep the precepts pure, we need mindfulness and wise attention to restrain ourselves when necessary. In connection with the precepts, we have another activity that functions as a protective power. And this is the act of going for refuge. When a person goes for refuge, and in the context of the Buddha's teaching, it's uh, going for refuge to the triple gem, the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. So when a person goes for refuge, then this person makes the commitment to accept the triple gem as the guiding ideals of his or her life. And so then to bring his or her actions in har into harmony with these ideals, the person expresses his or her determination by following uh, the precepts. So if we look for a suitable door uh, to enter the Buddha's teaching, then this door of uh, the act of going for refuge is definitely a very suitable door. Refuge to the triple gem, as I said, the Buddha as the fully uh, enlightened teacher, to the Dhamma as the truth uh, taught by him and to be realized, and to the Sangha as the community of his noble disciples. And so given the importance uh, of going for refuge, then we could ask, well, what need is there for a refuge? A refuge is a person or a place or a thing giving shelter or giving protection from harm and danger. And in the commentaries to the scriptures, going for refuge uh, is also explained with another words, uh, for which the English translation is to crush. And so it's explained, when people have gone for refuge, then by that very going for refuge, it crushes 
It dispels, removes and stops their fear, anguish, suffering, risk of unhappy rebirth and defilement. So quite powerful. (laughs) So when we go for refuge to the triple gem, so the triple gem as a refuge can give protection from anxiety, frustration, sorrow, and so on in this present life. The triple gem as a refuge, it also gives protection from the risk of an unhappy uh, rebirth in our next existence. And lastly, the going for refuge in the triple gem it can give protection from the continuous transmigration in samsara. This protective power of going for refuge in the triple triple gem has to be experienced by each and every person for him or herself. It's very difficult to uh, explain it on a theoretical level. So here I want to tell you a story of a Western monk who um, was attacked by some robbers on his pilgrimage in India. So this Western monk and a lay uh, attendant were walking through a forested countryside between Nalanda and Rajgir. And they were told that that area was infested with bandits and robbers and that they better should not go. But they were quite confident in thinking, no, no, nothing will happen to us. And so uh, at one point in that area, they met a group of men who had been cutting trees in the forest. They all had axes and staves of wood. as it was a very lonely area, uh, so these men surrounded the monk and his lay attendant immediately, and they wanted to take all their things. And so the layman who was with the monk, thinking that he had to protect the monk, started to fight with these men. He got knocked around quite a bit, and so finally, he ran off into the undergrowth and two of the Indian men after him. And that left the monk alone with four uh, of these men. And they made it very obvious that they were going to kill the monk because the monk, he spoke a little bit of Hindi and so he could understand uh, what they were saying to each other. And also one of these men, he was brandishing an axe over his head. So the situation was quite clear. (laughs) And in that very moment, a thought came up in the monk's mind. And it was, when you go and practice in the place of the Buddha, do not find fault with anyone for any reason. And this was an advice given to him by a Buddhist master before he had set out for this pilgrimage. And so the monk realized, well, if this is what is happening, I cannot escape. And I'm not going to fight these people. And if I did anyway, I uh, could not win anyway. So I will just give myself to them. And so with that, he bowed his head, put his hands together in Anjali, and started to chant, Namo Tassa. So there he stood, bowed head, waiting calmly for the axe to fall. As he was chanting, nothing happened. And... After a little while, 
He looked up and saw the man in front of him still holding his axe over his head, but the man could not bring it down. And so then the monk, getting already a little bit cheeky, <laughs> he went like this, drawing a line on his head. <laughs> but again, this bandit could not bring himself to harm the monk. As it turned out, finally the bandits, they took all their belongings. The monk was only left with his lower garment and the sandals. <laughs> Another thing that is said uh, to be a protection are the four protective meditations. So these four protective meditations are four kinds of reflections that, when properly developed and cultivated, can act as a protection. Our spiritual practice is often compared to a long journey. And in the same way, as we set out well prepared for a journey to a distant place, so is a good equipment necessary for our spiritual journey. So in the same way as we take a map, maybe a compass, some food, drink, and maybe some weapons to dis defend ourselves if we go on an uh, expedition, so we need these four protective meditations for our spiritual journey. They provide us with the direction, provide us with food and drink, and with some weapons to defend ourselves. These four protective meditations are Buddhanusati, which is the recollection of the Buddha's attributes, then Metabhavana, which is the practice of loving-kindness meditation. It's Asubhavana, the recollection of the non-beauty of the body or loathsomeness of the body. And Maranasati, which is uh, the reflection on death. So these four protective meditations are like a fence that protects the young plants uh, from intruders. So the fence holds intruders away so that the little shoots can grow and become strong, mature plants. All these four protective meditations are said to be like an armor which protects a soldier from the deadly arrows of his enemies. So the first of these four protective meditations is the recollection of the Buddha's attributes. And by doing so, this increases our confidence. Confidence in the Buddha, in uh, the practice. And it can also uh, help strengthen our faith that complete liberation is possible. when we recollect the attributes of the Buddha, uh, for example, then we come to clearly appreciate and have confidence that what he could do to completely liberate his mind, that this is possible for uh, us as well. The second of these four protective meditations is Metta meditation, the development of loving kindness. And as we know, I think we are all familiar with this practice. It fosters uh, benevolence uh, towards all living beings. And it helps remove the fires of greed, aversion, and hatred. 
heart that radiates loving kindness knows no barriers between close and distant persons. It no longer distinguishes between liked or disliked persons. The next uh, reflection is the reflection on the non-beauty of the body, or as it is translated also, the loathsomeness of the body. And this helps reduce our attachment to our body or to the bodies of others. And also it leads to a more realistic understanding of the true nature of the body. And so it also can help reinforce our commitment to renunciation. This reflection can be done on uh, reflecting on the 32 parts of the body. If one can see the body um, as a skeleton wrapped with some flesh and skin with containers holding urine, feces, uh, some blood, mucus, uh, pus floating around, then one is much less uh, inclined to attach, to be attached to this body or uh, to somebody else's body. And this can also be helpful in our daily lives when we are overcome with strong attachment to our body. For example, when we fall uh, severely sick or when we experience some very strong sensual desire. So the purpose of this reflection is to increase an understanding of the true nature of our body and it's not to arouse feelings of disgust or ill will towards our body. And the last of these reflections is the reflection on death. And by doing so, we come to understand and see more clearly the nature of impermanence. And with that, that arouses a feeling of spiritual urgency to see that we have to do something to liberate ourselves. During our trip in samsara, we have already died many, many, many times. So actually, death is no stranger to us. On the contrary, death is an old acquaintance and it surely will come and visit us one day. So all the qualities that are developed through these four protective meditations are of great importance on our spiritual journey. Without them, it's much more difficult to uh, progress uh, on the way. As a very practical matter, for example, we can spend about two minutes for each of this reflection in our early morning meditation. Then it's like packing our spiritual day pack. We pack it with confidence, with loving kindness, with an antidote for clinging and grasping, and with a sense of urgency. And so bearing these qualities in mind, they will protect us throughout the day whenever we face difficult uh, situations. Another area that can bestow protection are the so-called paritas, the protective suttas, protective discourses. There is a number of discourses that are known as discourses for protection. In Asian Buddhist countries, these protective suttas are chanted daily in the monasteries and also in the homes of lay people. 
and in Burma there are 11 protective suttas and each day of the week is assigned one or two of these suttas. So in Burma, for example, Sunday is the day of the Mangala Sutta. Tuesday is the day of the Metta Sutta and the Kanda Sutta. Or Saturday, that's the day of the Bojanga Sutta, the Sutta about the factors of enlightenment. So each of these protective suttas is said to have uh, the power to avert certain dangers or, in other words, to give protection from uh, harm, from dangers. For example, the Metta Sutta, it offers protection from frightening objects offers protections from bad dreams and omens. The Ratana Sutta, the jewel discourse, is said uh, to offer protection from famine, evil spirits and disease. The Mangala Sutta is the Sutta of giving blessings, so giving protection from danger and harm in a more general uh, sense. The, there is a short sutta called Vata Sutta and this is said to offer protection against fire. Um, I want to tell you this uh, briefly. When I uh, was teaching in Australia, uh, in the past few years, I was usually teaching at the Blue Mountains, which is near Sydney, on the East Coast. And after that, I went to Wat Buddha Dhamma, which is a monastery, a center a bit north of Sydney. It's in a national park in the middle of a huge forest and in Australia, they often have uh, forest fires. There, they call the forest bush. So they call it bush fires. And at one stage when I was there doing my self-retreat, it was just over Christmas New Year, they also had a retreat going on with about 20, 25 people there. And there were some bushfires around in the area, and so they would check in with the park ranger and the town whether or not we had to leave or not. And so about after a few days being there, actually uh, the news came that we had to leave, to evacuate the place because the fires were getting too close. And so that was the end of the retreat for the people and the end of my self-retreat. But then, as we later heard, uh, the fire didn't come through. So, But they just wanted to get us out early enough, and especially having a large number uh, of people there. But then, a couple of years later, when I was teaching uh, in the Blue Mountains, actually, when I got there, I got the news that um, a fire had actually gone through Wat Buddha Dhamma, through the place, and that they were sorry that I couldn't come uh, for the self-retreat. But then, after a few days teaching in the Blue Mountains, uh, they called me again, and they said after the fire had gone through, they went there to check the place, and to their big surprise, nothing had happened to the buildings. And so they said that they would return and that it was fine for me to come and do my self-retreat. So then, after teaching the 10 days retreat, I went there 
And what I encountered there was the strangest, most eerie thing I had ever seen. Um, you know, in Australia, when there is bushfires, well, it's not only bushes, but they also have huge trees and many eucalyptus trees. And so when a bushfire goes through, um, the fire uh, mostly ravages on the ground, like all the eucalyptus leaves that are on the ground. They are high uh, with oil and all the undergrowth. And so the very tall trees, 20, 30 meters high trees, um, they are not so much affected by a bushfire, so they are still there. But so everything was just black. The ground was black, and the trunks of the trees, up to about three, four, five meters, just black. It was a very, very uh, strange sight. Up there, the high trees, they still had uh, their leaves, some of them a bit shriveled, uh, brown, uh, dried, but still, they were there. And the other, even more amazing thing was to see that all the buildings had remained intact. Like, it's, it's really in the middle of the forest, and they have the dining hall, the sala, meditation hall, uh, some dormitory accommodation, and then they have about eight little kutis a bit further back on a mountain slope under the trees, all wooden, wooden buildings. And except for a little wooden sh uh, shack, none of the buildings were destroyed. They were all intact. And so I, I don't know if they... Uh, recited the Vata Sutta. <laughs> but anyway, there was some strange power there, Dhamma power, which uh, protected that place. And as I was doing my retreat, 10 days or two weeks into, into the retreat, I started to notice, you know, like these charcoal sticks <laughs> coming out of the ground, smaller trees, which I thought they were dead. But no, little green sprouts started to come out. And also on the ground, little plants uh, started to grow. And it was almost like a wonder to see how life was still there. And actually, many of the plants in Australia, um, they need the, the heat of the fire to crack open the seeds. They are very uh, hard shells, and they only can uh, crack open by fire. So it's a natural thing for the Australian bush or forest to regenerate. It needs, actually, the fire. So coming back to the protective power of the uh, paritas, so the protection can be obtained by either reciting these suttas oneself, oneself or by listening uh, to the paritas. But for the paritas to manifest their protective power, the recitation or the listening must be done with understanding and confidence. It must be done with intelligence, and devotion. The Buddha himself had uh, Parita recited to him when he was sick. And he, the Buddha, recited the Bhujanga Sutta when the Venerables Kasapa or Moggallana were sick. And so by listening carefully uh, to the Sutta, then the Buddha, as well as Venerable Mughalan and Kasapa, um, recovered from their illness, it is said. So several factors contribute to the 
efficacy of the recitation of these paritas. Chanting these protective suttas is a form of, in Pali, satcha kiriya, or uh, it's translated as an asseveration of truth. So the protecting power results uh, of such an asseveration of truth. And in some of these protective suttas, then at the end, the reciters would bless the listeners with the words, which means, by the power of the truth of these words, may you be ever well. So, the phrase that I mentioned at the very beginning of this talk, like the power of the Dhamma protects the follower of the Dhamma, uh, indicates the principle behind the reciting of these paritas. Whatever the Buddha said or taught throughout his life was done on the basis of uh, loving-kindness and compassion. So always with the attitude to benefit other beings. And so whenever his words are repeated and recited, then it should be done with the same pure motivation to benefit other beings. And so then the words become imbued with a powerful purity and that in turn um, can develop into a powerful protection to an attentive and devoted listener. Another factor that adds to the protective force is the actual sound from the chanting. If the chanting is done in a way uh, then it can be soothing uh, for the nerves. It can be bring about peace and calm in the mind. And so it can help bring harmony uh, into the physical uh, system. So by listening uh, to Parita chants or chanting themselves, when it's done with the proper attitude, one's mind is filled with wholesome mental states. And so therefore, unwholesome mental states are abandoned or uh, that prevents, or it can prevent unwholesome states from arising. And if there are wholesome, positive mental states, then they conduce to well-being to happiness, prosperity, and liberation. So after all I have said in regard to the protective power of the Dhamma, it should have become clear that this power of protection cannot be obtained by remaining inactive. It's not by sitting uh, in the soft chair and looking out of the window that this protective power falls into our lap as a gift from heaven. Rather, the protective power can be experienced by wholeheartedly applying the Buddha's teaching, by applying the Dhamma uh, in our life. And as we have seen, there are many different possibilities by being mindful, by going for refuge, or by keeping the precepts, by cultivating the guardians of the world, Hiri and Dottapa, or by practicing the four protective meditations, or by means of the paritas. So, in any case, our wholehearted engagement is crucial to experience 
the protective power of the Dhamma. To make a last comment, let's go back to the phrase that I mentioned in the beginning of this talk. Protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. So self-protection and protection of others correspond to the great uh, twin virtues of Buddhism, which are wisdom and compassion. So right self-protection is the expression of wisdom and understanding. And right protection of others is the uh, expression of compassion and loving-kindness. So let's sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.